Our text this morning is going to be Ephesians 1, verses 20 through 23, but for this reading, I'm going to read from 15 through 23. Here is God's holy word for us. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Will you pray with me? Lord, there is majesty in this text as it exposes to us the glories, the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. I would ask you, God, as we study, make us worshipers, genuine, forgiven, committed, life-changed worshipers of the Lord Jesus. That is our prayer in Christ's holy name. Amen. And you can be seated. There are many things that God has done which display for us God's incredible power. God created the universe out of nothing. Stop and think about that for a second because I think that blows by us far too quickly. God did not simply take existing matter and shape it into a planet and moons and all the rest, though that would be impressive. God made light exist where there was no light. God made matter exist where there had previously been no matter. God made water and sky and land and trees and fish and birds and animals where none had existed previously. And this shows us that God is powerful. You and I cannot create a single thing without using the material that God has provided. Go ahead and try. Go ahead. Try it. Let there be pizza. Give it a shot. How many of you can do that? No. Does not work, does it? When Paul was praying for the church in and around the city of Ephesus, he prayed that those early Christians would know certain things. Paul wanted them to know the hope that God has for all believers. He he wanted them to know their value to the Lord. And Paul prayed that the people of Ephesus would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they would have a sense of the greatness of the power of God. After all, it is this almighty God who has saved us, who keeps us, and who has promised us eternity with him. So if you were going to write a letter to the church, 
and pray that God would display to the church God's power. What would you use to help them understand just how mighty God is? Would you use creation? Be a good place, right? Would you use the flood or the Red Sea? Maybe that shows the power of God. Would you use the miracles in Jesus' life, like walking on water or turning water to wine or, or the wonderful healings? Those all show the power of God. But what event really displays the power of God so that you would make the church say, if you get this, you'll see the power of Almighty God at work in you? In our text for today, Paul gives us little theology that's going to help us be aware of God's amazing power. And in the process, we're going to see that this power of God is most on display in the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension and enthronement in heaven where we will see the greatness of the power of God, a power that gives us hope and joy, will be in the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're a note taker, you can make room for three points about Jesus that remind us of his greatness, that remind us of God's power. And remember this, friends, that these things about the power of God and the greatness and supremacy of Jesus, they are to give you hope as a Christian if you're a believer because you will then be remembering whose you are. So let's get ready and let's jump in with point number one this morning. Jesus has risen and ascended. Jesus has risen and ascended. That should give you hope. Look at the end of verse 19 through verse 20. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The God who made us is one God who eternally exists in three persons. From forever before, forever past, God has always been exactly what God is. God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And of course, God always is one, the one true God. The Father is not before the Son. The Son is not before the Spirit. The Spirit is not before the Father. God eternally exists as the one triune God. And in time, God the Son came to earth as a human being. Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary by, a, by the power of the Spirit of God. And Jesus took on actual human flesh, becoming truly God and truly man. And Jesus was born in the most ordinary fashion, to a poor young girl. And in doing so, he perfectly began to fulfill God's promise that the Savior would come born of a woman. And Jesus was born with the perfect pedigree to fulfill God's promise to send a king through the family line of David. And Jesus was born of the right family tree to fulfill God's promise to Abraham that he would have a descendant who would bless all nations. And Jesus grew up and lived a life that was absolutely perfect. He's the only human man who ever lived a life that was totally untainted by sin. Jesus flawlessly, completely fulfilled the requirements of the law of God. What God's law tells people not to do, Jesus didn't do. 
What God's law commands that a godly man do, Jesus did. Jesus' obedience to the law of God was perfect. And in his life, Jesus displayed for us the love and glorious character of God. Since Jesus is God in the flesh, he could show a watching universe exactly what God is like. All human beings are supposed to be displaying what God is like since God made us in God's image. But Jesus is the one human being who actually did exactly what God made us to do. Jesus showed us love and mercy, kindness, compassion, strength, humility, righteous anger, and so much more. You read through the life of Jesus and you see the God-man as the kind of person people wanted to be around. Children loved coming up to Jesus and climbing up in his lap. Women happily sat under Jesus' teaching. Men followed Jesus and learned from Jesus. Rich people and poor people wanted to hear Jesus' voice. Jesus was invited to parties. He was invited to weddings. He was invited to teach in synagogues. Jesus lived out absolute, perfect, total human perfection as God in the flesh. And that perfection of Jesus, this is so great, it was not off-putting. It was wonderful and joyful and gregarious. It was the kind of thing you wanted to be near. Yet Jesus suffered. All through his life, Jesus experienced the sorrow of living in a fallen world. Jesus watched as the nation of Israel refused to return to the Lord. Jesus watched as religious leaders failed to rightly handle the word of God. Jesus saw people who would not turn from sin, who would not change in their lives because they treasured their wealth and status too much. After three years of glorious public ministry, Jesus then suffered in a way that his followers never expected, no matter how many times he told them. Jesus came to this world to be the Lamb of God. Jesus, after fulfilling all righteousness, allowed himself to die a brutal death. And In his death, Jesus took upon himself the curse of God. Jesus bore in his body the wrath of God. Jesus went to the cross, and while he was hanging on the cross, suffering a brutal physical execution, God the Father poured out on Jesus, God the Son, all of his wrath for all of the sins that God would ever forgive. Remember, God's law has two sides to it. God's law tells you what to do in order to honor God, and God's law tells people that there is a legitimate punishment from God for disobeying the law of God. And the just nature of the law of God tells us that sin must receive a punishment that is appropriate to the level of its offense. In modern language, we would say the punishment must fit the crime. Is that true in the law of God? Oh, yes. The question for us must be, how much punishment is appropriate for rebellion against God? You ever think about that? God is infinite in his perfections. Any rebellion against God, any failure to perfectly honor God, is an infinite offense against God. Any sin, even the smallest human sin, is worthy of an infinite punishment from God. And that is why God makes it clear in his word that the wages of sin is death. 
because no finite human being can suffer the right wrath of God for sin and survive. When Jesus went to the cross, he voluntarily took upon himself the punishment from God for the sins of all that God will ever forgive. Why do I keep saying it that way? Well, those who are not forgiven by God will suffer the wrath of God for their own sins by spending forever in hell. But all that God forgives must have our sin punished properly so that God can both be forgiving and just. So God the Father punished God the Son for the sins of every single person God forgives. As Jesus was on the cross, Jesus suffered an infinity's worth of the wrath of God to pay the price for every sin God forgives, and Jesus died. Purchasing forgiveness for all who would come to him in faith, Jesus died. Opening the way for men and women who could never be sin-free on their own, Jesus died. Buying the pardon of every believing child of God, Jesus died. In Ephesians 1, Paul's been telling the church that he prays that they will understand how great is the love of God. Paul prays for them that they would receive the great inheritance that God has promised us all, that they would believe it and know it. Paul Paul knows that God has heaven in store for every believer instead of hell, and that is because of Jesus. And Paul prayed for the Ephesians that they would know how much God values them. After all, not only does God promise us the inheritance of heaven with him forever, but God also claims us as his inheritance forever. God says that the people that he saves, the people that are his, are an eternal gift from the Father to the Son. The rescued people of God, the the, the eternal church, is a treasure to the Lord. And Paul wants the Ephesians to know it. But there's one more thing that Paul wants the Ephesians to grasp. Paul prays that the Ephesians will understand the power of God that is revealed in the part of the gospel story that comes after the cross. See, we know Jesus lived a perfect life. We know Jesus suffered a sacrificial death as a substitute for all God is ever going to forgive. We know that Jesus genuinely died. But if you stop telling the story there, you miss the point and you miss it badly. Jesus died. Is that true? Yes. And then on the third day, Jesus rose again. Jesus really, literally, physically came back to life and walked out of his grave. God, displaying unfathomable power, raised Jesus from the dead. It is the resurrection that's the first element that Paul cites to say to the church that we must grasp the greatness of the power of God at work in us. It is the resurrection of Jesus, even beyond the miracles of the incarnation, the the healings, or even his raising Lazarus from the, the dead. It is the resurrection of Jesus that is to begin to convince us that the power of God in us, working in us, working through us, is beyond anything we could ever imagine. 
R. Kent Hughes, writing about the resurrection, says, quote, Just as the cross is the highest display of God's love, so the resurrection is the ultimate display of his power. No created force could ever do this. Just stop and consider the incredible power exercised by God the Father to raise Jesus from the dead. And add to that power the incredible meaning that the resurrection has. You see, if Jesus could die and rise again, then the work that Jesus came to do, the work of paying the full price for our sins, it must be fully complete. If there was still more payment Jesus had to make for sins, he could not come out of the grave. No sin for which Christ died can ever be punished by God again. It would be utterly unjust for God to both punish Jesus for your sin and then to punish you for the same sin. God has fully satisfied his justice by punishing Jesus for the sin of every believer he forgives. But now that Jesus is alive again, we can know for sure that if we're in Christ, our sins are fully, forever forgiven. The resurrection is the final sign that our justification is complete. It is the final sign that Jesus is everything Jesus claimed to be. God in flesh, the perfect sacrifice for the sins of all who come to God. Listen to how Paul ties the resurrection of Jesus to the proof of the identity of Jesus and to our need to come to Jesus for grace. In Acts 17, 30 and 31, Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God commands all people to repent. How do we know God commands all people to repent? Jesus has risen from the grave. God has proved that Jesus is the only way to be forgiven. How do we know that? Jesus has risen from the grave. God has proved that Jesus is the ultimate judge of all humanity. How do we know that? Jesus has risen from the grave. God has proved that all who die in Christ have hope of life after death. How do we know that? Jesus has risen from the grave. Listen to Romans 6, verses 8 through 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And our lives have no hope without the resurrection of Jesus. As 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Now, there's a lot more we could say about the hope that we have because of the resurrection of Jesus. But Paul doesn't just stop with the resurrection. Paul also points to the power of God exercised in not only raising Jesus from the dead, but as Paul says, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand 
in the heavenly places. Forty days after Jesus rose from the grave, Jesus ascended into heaven where he now sits enthroned in glory. Jesus didn't die again. Understand that. We we didn't lose Jesus. Jesus will never die again. Jesus is alive right now, today, in the presence of his Father, awaiting the day when he will return and reign with his people forever. Christ reigns now. Christ will reign forever. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Or as the author of the letter of the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1, 3, and 4, he is, Jesus is, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as, is the, as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Christ reigns in heaven alive until he returns to earth where he will reign alive in a glorified resurrection body forever. If you want to tie the whole story together, you can look to what Manny read to us from Paul's letter to the Philippians in Philippians 2, 5 and following. He said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not equality with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ lived a perfect life. Christ died a sacrificial death. Christ rose from the dead in power and is eternally exalted to the highest place. And all of this is done by the perfect plan and stunning power of God. Now stop and think. Paul prayed that the church would understand this as the evidence of the power of God that is at work in all who believe. The God who raised Jesus from the dead is the God who lives in us. The God who raised Jesus from the dead is the God who forgives all who come to Jesus. The God who raised Jesus is the God who gives us eternal hope and eternal purpose. The God who enthroned Jesus in heaven is the God who will give us all he has ever promised us. And this gives us hope, Christians, and this causes us to worship our mighty, mighty God. But there's more. Second point this morning. Jesus is above all powers. 
Second reason for hope, Jesus is above all powers. Verse 20 says that he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And 21 gives us at his right hand above heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. See, not only did Jesus do something amazing to save us through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he also proved the might of God in the process. The power of God is evident not only in the fact that Jesus is alive even now, which he is, but the power of God is evident in the fact that Jesus is alive in the face of forces who would have done absolutely everything in their power to prevent it from taking place. You know, in more than one place in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul is going to point to the fact that we're living in a world that is both physical and spiritual. And while there are all sorts of things that you and I can see around us as enemies in life, there's also a spiritual war that's going on that you and I can't see. Now, we're coming to the end of October, and I will tell you that Halloween horror movie monsters do not exist But angels and demons most certainly do exist. When Paul says to us that God seated Jesus in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, he was referencing the fact that Jesus Christ in his ascension to his heavenly throne is seated above all types of spiritual forces in the universe no matter what kind you try to bring up. No earthly king, no angelic majesty, no demonic evil can even come close to touching the place where Jesus Christ is now seated. In his rising from the grave, in his enthronement in heaven, Jesus showed that there is no power in existence that can stand against him. And that's again where we need to stop and consider the fact the devil and all of his demons above all else would have wanted to keep Jesus from being able to make it to the throne of heaven. Wouldn't you agree that that would be a goal of theirs to stop that from happening? Satan tried to make Jesus sin during his earthly life. Didn't work. Once Jesus died, don't you think Satan would have most certainly wanted to try to do everything in his power to make Jesus stay dead? Didn't work. And once Jesus rose from the grave, no way would Satan have wanted Jesus to be enthroned in heaven. But Satan was completely powerless to do anything about it whatsoever because Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God Almighty. Jesus is unstoppable. And Jesus conquered the grave, ascended through the skies, and sat down on the throne of heaven. No power physical, no power spiritual has any hold over Jesus and neither does any authority in the universe have any authority over Jesus Paul says Jesus is above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come in Philippians 2 9 Paul said that the father has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name There is no authority in any corner of the universe who can stop Jesus from fulfilling everything Jesus intends to fulfill for the church forever. Not one. 
Thinking about power, Paul wants Christians to know we are under the care of the one who didn't just defeat death and sit down on the throne of the universe. We are also under the care of the one whose authority over all things is unmatched, unbeaten, unbeatable. Third point, final point for this morning. Jesus is head of the church. Jesus is head of the church of the church 22 and 23 says and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all god the father put all things under christ's feet i think we kind of already saw that didn't we God the Father made Christ the head over all things. That too is not really a vastly different thought than what we've already been thinking. But in this last section, Paul shares with us the glory of Christ's particular headship of the church. First Christians, understand, Jesus Christ is head of the church. He is the Lord over you and over me. And there is no human being on earth who has the right to claim himself to be the head of the church. This, of course, is a factor in how the reformers pushed back against the Roman Catholic Church and the false claims of the Pope. The church is Jesus' church, not a church belonging to any individual man on earth or any council of men. Jesus owns his church. And next we see that the church is Christ's body. Jesus is not physically present with us here today. But... The church, the united collection of all those saved by the grace of God, is on earth to show the world Jesus. We are to remind the world that Christ reigns. We are to be a part of God's kingdom coming and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to love like Jesus and share the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ with all the nations. If the church is Christ's body, and Christ himself is the head of the body, then we, brothers and sisters, should treasure the church. Don't you think? There is not a single thing you can do in your life that is more important than being a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that. When you make important life decisions, when you think about, where should I go? Or what should I do for a living? Or what should I do with my spare time? Or how should I live my life? Remember that you are a part of the body over which Jesus Christ is head. And Paul finishes up this section by saying that the church, as Christ's body, is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Fullness there, that the church is the fullness, reminds us how greatly Christ treasures the church. Earlier, we said the people of God are his inheritance. Here, we see that the church is the body of Christ, and in in this amazing turn of a phrase, his fullness, the fullness of Christ. In other passages of Scripture, we see that the church is called the bride of Christ. So Christ is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. 
And we, we should see with all those sorts of things that we, we, we should never make a mistake. Jesus is over all. He does not need us in a sense that he is incomplete or insufficient without us. But don't mistake this either, folks. Jesus Christ treasures his church. He loves those for whom he died. He loves those he came to save. He loves those he will keep with him forever. So in Christ, as the body of Christ, as the fullness of him who fills all in all, we matter greatly to our God. And Christ fills all in all. That reminds us that the, that the risen, living, enthroned Christ, he is the source and the purpose and the hope of everything that has hope. There is no single thing that exists that does not exist for Jesus. There is no single thing that happens that will not ultimately be to the glory of Jesus. There is not one part of your life that is not supposed to be for the honor of Jesus. So what in the world do we do with all this talk of the supremacy of Jesus? Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus is enthroned in glory. Jesus is superior to all spiritual forces. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the one who fills all in all. We as the church, as the body, exist for the purpose and the glory of Jesus, the head. What we do with all this is we let it remind us of our purpose and remind us of our hope. Paul prayed that the Ephesians would know the power of God in the supremacy of Christ. And you and I who hear this talk, this very familiar talk, should rejoice in the glory and the majesty and the supremacy of Jesus. Because Jesus rose from the grave, we will live after death. Because Jesus is enthroned in glory, we know we have all the promises of heaven that God has ever hinted at. Because Jesus is over all spiritual forces, we know that no spiritual force in the universe can ever take us from Jesus or prevent us from becoming what Jesus wants us to become. Because we're the body of Christ, we know we have a purpose to do the will of the head for his glory. Because we are his body, we know he treasures us and fulfills his ultimate eternal will through us. Jesus Christ is victorious. Jesus Christ was victorious. Jesus Christ will be victorious. And we find our life, our purpose, our hope in him. And of course, if you don't know Jesus, let this be your invitation. You can't defeat Jesus. You're not stronger than him. You're not wiser than him. You cannot defeat Jesus. If you refuse Jesus, you will, by your choice, suffer the wrath of God for your sin, and it will be an eternal witness to the glory of God's justice. But would it not be so much better for you to come to Jesus and find forgiveness and instead be an eternal witness to the grace and kindness of Jesus? I invite you, trust in Jesus. Turn from your sin. Ask him to be your savior and your Lord and you will be saved. Then you too can know the glory and the power of the Christ who is over all. Let's bow together and let's pray.
Father, you are good. And your steadfast love endures through all generations. God, you are our God, and there is none like you. And we thank you for your mighty power and your glorious grace. I pray that for the Christians here today, that as we have heard of the supremacy of Jesus, we marvel at our Savior and that we marvel at your power. And just as Paul prayed that the church would know our hope, our value, and your power, that we really would see your power. And I pray that we would love Jesus better and think better thoughts of Jesus and live to honor Jesus in every possible way way. The truth is, Lord, our lives exist for your glory. So may we indeed say that all glory and all things be to Christ. And for all who don't yet know Jesus, I pray you will do work in their lives that they might honor Jesus too. That's our prayer. In Christ's holy name, amen.